Let us pray once again. Oh Lord, we do raise our Ebenezer to see the monument of your doing, bringing us out of death into life. We thank you, Lord, that you have gathered us this day to worship you. And we now pray that you will be with us as we open a portion of your words. Speak to us. Satisfy us with your presence. Satisfy our thirst for you, Lord. Because we thirst and hunger like in a weary land. And we need this fountain that comes from you to fill us, to fill our hearts, Lord. To lead us into your green pastures. We pray that you will be with my mouth, Lord. That your spirit will speak to each and every one of us in our hearts. And you will transform us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, have you ever experienced thirst? Heavy thirst. Uh, there was this uh, company that had gone into the desert. Lag Lag was his name. When their truck broke down. And... Uh, their bodies started to be dehydrated to the point that they were willing to drink anything to quench their thirst. The sun had forced them to go under the truck and to dig a shallow trench to keep themselves in the shade in the desert. And they had food, but day after day they would not touch their food because they feared that eating will magnify their thirst the dehydration it was the real killer for wonders in the desert not starvation the thirst was the most terrible of suffering in the desert so they progressed from ordinary thirst to then intense thirst all the way to excessive thirst which drove them to drink anything, even the water of the radiator of the truck, in order to be able to survive the, the great thirst. They were willing to even drink poison to satisfy their thirst. And friends, there's something similar in the spiritual realm of today that we can depend on things to satisfy our thirst. We can depend on money. We can depend on relations. We can depend on power, sex, drugs, anything to, to quench our thirst. But in reality, we are drinking spiritual poison, which is a dangerous substitute for what Christ can give us. Christ promised to us to give us living water. So that we shall never thirst again. This is what we want to address today. How God truly satisfies our desires, our discontent, our longing through giving living water even to outcasts like you and me. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. Now we come to chapter 4. We just ended a series of miracles to begin the ministry of Jesus. 
Remember that John is writing this gospel to people who are not Jewish people. To foster the mission of God, of the gospel, going to the Gentiles. And so it is significant that now we come to this series of encounters. If you were here weeks ago, we saw this timid religious Jewish man, a Pharisee, Nicodemus, who was struggling to understand what it meant to, have a, to be born again, to have the new birth, to actually be born of the water and of the Spirit. And he was uh, then in sharp contrast to the character that we meet today, a woman at the well, who now is a very bold, non-Jewish woman, a Samaritan, who does what Nicodemus failed to do. She believes immediately and shares the good news openly to everyone. So that the gospel goes to this entire Samaritan community. So they stand, the Samaritan woman and the, and the Nicodemus Pharisee, as two opposite worlds. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But now he's going to anyone who receives him, even Samaritans. Now, to you that word Samaritan may not mean much, but yes, Sam Samaria was the capital, if you know your Old Testament history, of the northern kingdom. But something had happened in the northern kingdom of Samaria. When the captivity and the exile came... All the northern tribes were deported away. And then the king of Assyria had brought people from all over the Assyrian empire to colonize the northern kingdom. And this had brought people who were pagans to be interested in the God of Israel. However, with that interest came some mixture between paganism and, and, the, and the worship of the God of Israel. The one true God. And so you have the Samaritans. Samaritans who believed only parts of the Old Testament, the first five books of the, your Bible, and wanted to help Ezra, for example, to rebuild the temple, but they were kept because they were not part of the Jewish people. And so there's kind of a, a, an antagonism between the Jewish people and the Samaritans, which was very sharp, to the point that in John 8, 24, for the Pharisees to call Jesus a Samaritan was a great insult it's a great insult however jesus in our text is not ashamed of going to the samaritans even he rebukes the disciples for their hostility toward them he heals samaritans he preaches to samaritans and he opens the door therefore for this new covenant going to all the nations even beyond the borders of the jewish people you also remember that weeks ago, Jesus has cleansed the temple. So now today we come back to this theme of worship and temple. He had said that he is the temple and his body was the temple. And he had said to the Pharisees, destroy this temple. And he continues that double meaning between temple, worship, water, living water. With this inclusion of the nations into the new covenant. This change that is brought about so that when you come to the Acts of the Apostles, you have this great reception of the gospel among the, the Samaritans. And we don't even know the name of this woman through which then salvation comes through the Samaritans. But behind her, it's each and every one of us. 
I trust that there's no Jewish person in this audience. And we are here not by nature. We have seen this throughout the weeks past. That it is not by the will of man. It's not by the will of the flesh. That we were separated from God. Not part of the people of God. But by faith in Jesus Christ. We are now brought in into the Christian community. And I know this summer under the heat. These words of thirst are particularly crucial. So I want you to see that in this story of the woman at the well, that to satisfy your spiritual thirst, Christ is offering living water to you this morning so that a harvest results from that living water. Not just in you, but from all the nations of the earth. So that we may worship God wherever we are in the world in spirit and truth. So we want to see in this woman at the well several characteristics. Notice first in the beginning of our text, verses 1 through 9, how she thirsts for living water. The context of this thirst is significant. is the fact that she's a Samaritan. And she is seeking water at a Jewish well, Jacob's well. You remember last time we had dealt with some of the competition between the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of Jesus. Now that competition in verses 1 to 3 spreads even through the Pharisees who now are concerned in the growth of popularity for Jesus. And this is a problem for them because he baptized more than John. And we know that it wasn't Jesus but it was his disciple. But again, it had caused issues even with the Pharisees. We saw this theme last time, so we're not going to repeat. But again, there's this carnal judging to the point that Paul in Corinthians has similar words to say, I have baptized no one to avoid this rivalry that we saw last week. Jesus has become aware of these gossips around this person. And when the Lord knew our text says, he leaves southern Judea to go back to his hometown to Galilee but verse 4 says there's an interesting obstacle that requires a change of plan or detour in order to go back to his hometown he has to pass through Samaria Samaria again is the land where the Samaritans are and it wasn't necessarily for geographical reasons he has to go through but to fulfill God's will and plan because you see Jews avoided the Samaritans as the plague as we will see probably the disciples tried to dissuade Jesus from going that way but Jesus has some kingdom work there and so he passes through there I know Rick told me anytime he's trying to go to Oklahoma he has to avoid he wants to avoid Memphis but here is that type of thing. Samaria is not the place we should pass through. But you see, God had a plan even in this detour. And so they come to this town. And there's an inter interesting comment there in, in the text for you. They come to the plot, the very plot of ground that Jacob had built a well. This is an historical landmark, which is also a providential ordeal if you were... There, when we went to the book of Ruth in our evening service, we saw that nothing happened by chance. But this was a work of providence. Genesis 33 records for us the 
this building of the, uh, of the well, of Jacob's well. And interesting, Joseph was buried there when Israel came back from, from Exodus. So it is not accidental here that in verse 6 we have Jacob's well. We know from, again, before Jacob Isaac, who had this quarrel with these uh, Philistines, redigging the wells that his father Abraham had built. And so Moses and, had rescued Zipporah, his future wife, at a well. We also know that Isaac and Jacob met their future wives at a well. We know that Paul meets Lydia at a well. Wells were meeting places back in the old days. And there are important things happening at wells in the Bible. But here is the coming of salvation for this Samaritan woman. And the connection again with this Jacob Old Testament story is that the contention that's thriving after water between Jews and non-Jews, Samaritans, can come to an end. That the broke of separation between Jews and Gentiles comes to an end by faith in Jesus Christ, who gives us living water. But Jesus here is thirsty. Because he's a human being, he, he's tired from the journey and he decides to stop by the well. He does so at the highest peak of heat during the day. This is the sixth hour, which is the hottest part of the day. Probably noon. He wants to take a break. And it makes also sense why now this Samaritan woman shows up. Because no one goes at the well at that hour. Perhaps she wants to be avoided, to be ridiculed for being a foreign Samaritan. And as we know her story, a pedigree of multiple divorces, she is in shame. So she comes when nobody's around. And here's the surprise that you have a Jew like Jesus who seeks water from a Samaritan. He asks her a drink. Verse 7 and 9. Jesus asks her, give me a drink. To this, she's startled, shocked. I mean, how is it that you ask a drink from me, which I am a woman? I mean, verse 27 tells us that the disciples are surprised that he's talking to a woman. But mainly because I am also a foreigner, a Samaritan. In case you haven't noticed, you are a Jew. And I am us and the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritan. Jewish people did not associate at all. They were enemies with Samaritans. It, that, that is similar to the very much isolation that you find in an Amish community or in the Orthodox Jewish people today. But Samaritans were to be considered outsiders, outcasts, unworthy to, to even speak with them, let alone to take a cup and share the same cup and then you become unclean by having this contact with Samaritans. That was the Jewish understanding back then. You see, we say often, never judge a book by its cover. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing out here. He has a divine appointment with this woman. And so it teaches us that Jesus, in order to satisfy our spiritual thirst, breaks even the barriers that are there. These were cultural barriers in this moment that they come right there at Jacob's well. 
You see, beyond the small, tiny world, there is an ordeal of God bringing them together. Right there in that monument to Jacob, he, he's, he's going to meet the Messiah. Right there where the water of Jacob had been given, she receives living water. This is a divine appointment that we must not miss. That just like Jesus, he calls us to have openness to Yes, do works of mercy and grace as they arise before our eyes. That might be a monumental encounters of divine promise, providence that even in our inconveniences, God opens our eyes to see what He's about to do. And my question again to you this morning is, do you thirst? Do you thirst? I know it's summer. We are in the middle of July. And we all know how thirsty can be in a sunny day. But you see, this whole context of thirst and of heat is really to show us that there is a deeper thirst. In order for you to really taste how good the Lord is, you first need to feel your need of Him. Uh, God has to revive a thirst for Him in your soul. Just like the deer pants for streams of waters. So my soul thirsts after you, O God. You see that? That there is a thirst that nothing else can fill inside of you. There is a depression. There is a despair. There is an emptiness. It is all meant for you to feel your need of Christ. Realizing that this world has been a spiritual wilderness for you. That we are all thirsty like the woman at the well. The question is, where do we go with our thirsts? Same thirst for the things of this world that cannot satisfy it, or we go and fill our thirst with the only one who actually can quench it, who is right before our eyes, Jesus Christ. And I'm, I know that, like the Samaritan woman, we might feel the outcasts, that there's shame, there's Bitterness, there's things that you say, ah, oh, I am not worthy. And that God will not give me a drink. If He knows what I have done. If He knows the mess of my background. But friends, the only requirement here for you is the thirst. Anyone with thirst is the requirement. Nothing else. Not your worthiness. But that the satisfaction of your thirst is ultimately up to God. And thirst, friends, does not discriminate. You look at this story. You have a woman who is not even part of the people of God. A Samaritan. But Jesus is willing to engage with her. He initiates a conversation with her. And in, in the intent is to satisfy her true thirst. That she has carried around year after year. After things going wrong in her life, brokenness after brokenness, until finally she comes face to face with the Savior. And friend, He can do the same for you and me. Bypassing even barriers, any awkwardness. Jesus is willing to, to save anyone who comes to Him to give us true satisfaction. Look at the second point, in fact. That her satisfaction of this woman at the well comes through this living water in verse 10 to 15. Jesus bypasses her question, the whole matter of Jews and Samaritan. And he says, if only you knew the gift of God. Friends, what is the gift of God? 
The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, if you only knew what God is generally about to offer you right now, recognizing what wonderful gift is in store, and who is it who is asking you water? If only you would realize that I am the Messiah, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water. Now, there's something about the qualities of a different type of water that Jesus is describing here that is life-giving, that is spiritual, that is, again, the imagery that the Old Testament speak of a stream by the living water, both in Psalm and Ezekiel, but even later in the Gospel of John, this will continue in chapter 7, all the way to Revelation, we, we hear of God leading us to living fountains of water. That satisfy our thirst. But just like in previous weeks, you saw Nicodemus didn't catch the double meaning of this water. So this Samaritan woman thinks that he's talking about physical water. And she, said, she comments in verse 11 and 12, You have no bucket. This well is deep. How, how do you get that living water? Is this Jewish man playing games with me? Are you greater than our father Jacob? See, this is a, a matter of competition between Jews and Samaritan. Do, can you have offer me better water than Jacob? And the response of Jesus is, it's interesting. You see, physical water cannot take away thirst. You thirst, you come back to this water again. But the water I give you, you will never thirst again. One simple drop of the water that I give you, and you will be forever satisfied. That is the promise that comes. A fountain springing up into everlasting life. What Jesus describes for us is a gushing fountain. A perpetual spring where the water never runs out. It never gets stagnant or it never gets dry through the dry season. And it leads you to have actually eternity with God. To never die. To be completely, it's like drinking of an eternal water that makes you live forever. To this the woman is, she feels like Jesus has hit a chord in her heart. And he says, please Jesus, give me this water so that I may not come here to draw water again. You see how water, just like water is essential for our life. We cannot be separated from water. Our body is made of water. No water, you have no life, period. So just as water is so essential, so Jesus is now offering you something far more essential than physical water. Eternal life. Through this better and living water. I mean, do you realize what Jesus is offering to you and me? Not normal water but water that refreshes and always will remain in your soul all you have to do is to seek and ask for the right thing from god and he provides you from his bounty living water but this water has to pertain to eternity thinks about eternal life we all know how disappointing it is when we set our hope to things in this life that cannot satisfy us whether time or decay or 
the bitter taste that you have in your mouth after you taste something that you thought it was going to give you life, that you have pursued any pleasure that is not found anymore. So you come into a brokenness like this woman because of sin. She drank the poison and suffered. But Jesus instead gave her living water that truly satisfy her need, that truly quench her spiritual thirst forever. Now you ask any person that just came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the first drastic change that they can tell you about. That the dissatisfaction that they were under, the emptiness of life, all of a sudden was gone. That the, 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 the desire to be away from their life, away from their circumstances, and somehow escape somewhere and finding something. Finally, they find contentment because they had drank at the water of life. That Christ has satisfied their thirst. Is that true of you? That once and for all, this deeper thirst for God has been completely satisfied your spiritual need which is more important you see we were created by God to be actually satisfied in God to find our true and ultimately satisfaction in God and so the answer to the question of the Samaritan woman is yes I am greater than Jacob infinitely greater than Jacob yes Jacob may have provided you with physical water but I who descend from the line of Jacob in fact Jacob believes and is saved through beholding God through the mirror of this coming promise of this coming son of God and therefore yes I am greater than Jacob I provide living water in this spiritual wasteland and in fact unlike Jacob Jesus never deceived he was always truthful. And what life he offers is even better than the old form of the Jewish religion. Because it really goes at the heart and the root of your spiritual thirst, satisfying you completely. And by virtue of his death, by virtue of the fact that he died on the cross and he offered his life, and even there from his side, water fell mixed with blood. He was pierced, friend, for your sin. And that He gives you that life now that you can never die. He gives you grace that you can never lose. If you only would drink from this fountain that flows from His side. And so what you have to do is to bow down like the centurion and says, This is nothing other than the Son of God. This is my Savior. And I drink from His side and I am saved. And while God is the fountain of living water, it is also true that you can run away from and forsake the fountain of living water for broken cisterns, Jeremiah tells us. We all have things that in this life, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, that we run into those things and we feed upon them and then our bitterness grow, our disappointment grow, whether it's an idol, whether it's a relationship, whether it's work becoming more than it needs to be, whether it's having that much amount of money. If I only had that relationship, if I only have that amount of money, then what happens? It will never satisfy you. You get more and you want more. You're never satisfied. But what Christ can give you 
it's far better. And what happens, sadly, when we don't go and we forsake the fountain of living water, we then go and make further, further away from the spring of life, we make bad decisions. We compromise to satisfy our thirst. And so, friends, we must guard against backsliding. To be away from the church into the spiritual wilderness, that is as foolish as getting away from our oasis and going in the middle of the desert and thinking that you can handle it on your own. That is why, while this is a call to salvation, is also, there's a sense in which in a Christian walks, if our bitterness is always there, it testifies that there's a starvation, a spiritual starvation, and we have to go back and abide in Christ because apart from Him, we can do nothing. Let us continue our text. The third aspect that I want you to see, once Jesus water her, she's like a plant that grows, this woman at the well. She realizes that, first of all, Jesus is a true prophet, verse 16, because she's not getting what Jesus is after, now Jesus has to go personal. He goes personal and he says, call your husband. And she's like, I have no husband. She's claiming to be unmarried. And the answer of Jesus there in verse 16 is very sarcastic. You have well said, because you have five husbands, you had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your true husband. You could say that now the woman has been caught by Jesus' word. She cannot no longer hide. And she says, I perceive you are a prophet. Which means you can uncover my secret life. But now, since you're a prophet, let me go on a theological tangent. Huh? Have you met those people? That you point to them their sin... And they're like, oh, you're a preacher. Oh, come, let's talk about this topic. And that topic is like, yeah, we have to deal with, with you. You can talk all you want about those things. So she's, she's, she now asks, you know, about our fathers worship in this mountain. But you Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem. That, that is the temple, the proper place. Samaritans had uh, Mount Gerizim where they thought that the tabernacle was. And, and therefore we need to, to have that place of worship instead of that place of worship. But Jesus' answer is completely dismissive to this. He says, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming that neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. There is a change that is about to happen with the destruction of the temple, the end of the old covenant, and the coming of Christ as the true temple, as we saw in past weeks. But he also says, You Samaritans worship what you don't know. The Samaritans were, again, a mixture between paganism and, and the God of Israel. They were uh, walking in the dark. They, they, but we, Jewish people, says Jesus, know what we worship because salvation comes from the Jews. And this is a noteworthy statement that at this point in time, the priority of Jesus is because of the covenant and the word of God with the people of Israel. Despite his openness to her, there's still an order of priority. But he's saying this, that something is about to change in that order of priority. That that wall of distinction between those who were Jewish people and Gentiles is about to come down. The hour is coming and now it is that true worship will worship in spirit and truth. That it won't matter anymore the place of worship. That ultimately, you 
will worship God genuinely. That's what matters. That authentically or real, not in vain or false. But you will worship in spirit and truth. Spirit there means that just like God is invisible. Just like God is immaterial. He doesn't have a body. So we worship God in spirit and in truth, in sincerity, according to God's word, beyond appearance. In the truth of what the Father really is, you will worship Him in spirit and truth. And, and our text continues, says, God is seeking those who worship God in spirit and truth. It's not us seeking God, you see. It's God who is intently seeking for worshipers who worship Him according to what He wants to be worshipped, which is not in the flesh, but is in the spirit, which is not in false ideas or traditions, but is in truth. Because God, one of His primary attributes of God, is that in, in, in His being, God is spiritual. Just like God has no body, is invisible, He's immaterial, it is so, then therefore you must worship in spirit and truth. In accordance to the nature of God. Which means God is not tied to locations and like the temple in Jerusalem. When Solomon built the temple, he recognized that God is greater than the heavens. And God cannot dwell in a house made by hands. Because God is spirit. So he's not tied to that location. And he continues in verse 20, 25 to 26. Woman is now thinking, okay, I'm a little bit puzzled, but I have a one-side-fits-all type of answer here. That when the Messiah comes, he will fix everything that I cannot understand now. However, here's the surprise. I who am speaking to you am he. She's face to face with the Messiah. So what Stephen Charnocka says is it is visible that God is. It is invisible what God is. And therefore we worship Him in spirit and truth. That Jesus is a prophet, yes. But He's also more than a prophet. That He's the Messiah. The, one, the woman at the well here has come face to face with the Messiah. And He helps her grow, helps us grow into true spiritual worship. What is true spiritual worship? Notice first how Jesus is not afraid to enter the brokenness of this woman. Five husbands. Five husbands. Five broken marriages. And he, he's willing to enter into a dialogue with patient grace toward the brokenness of this woman. Which is an invitation for you and me to bring our, all of our baggage to Jesus. To realize that He's willing. He's willing to Come as you are. If you are willing to confess those things. The whole purpose of this conversation is to lead this woman to confess her sin. And to acknowledge her brokenness and therefore the need of the living water. And so if we are, if we are resistant or reluctant to talk about those secrets. Those past mistakes. That, that, that is what makes this moving forward toward Christ harder. We must not keep it all inside. We not, must not pretend to have it all together. But we confess it. Not so that we point the finger, but 
The purpose here is to transform, heal this woman's life and our own life. So that we bear each other's burden. Notice also Jesus' focus is not just her past, but her future. That is the beauty of what the gospel does. That Jesus came to save sinners. Not those who think that they're righteous in themselves. Because let's say that they're better than the one down the street. No. He comes even if you are sick. Not those you think you are healthy, you're doing okay, you're good enough. But even in your brokenness, that is what the gospel does. That God initiates this personal relationship with you. It, it, it allows you now to worship Him according to His word. And so what are you waiting for? Don't you want to embrace what Jesus offers even to the most broken like this woman at the well? However, this, don't misunderstand me, doesn't lower the standard of God for holiness. What Jesus wants to do here is to bring change so that she will confess it, own her sin, turn away from it, and not covering up as if nothing happened, not self-justifying. No, she is willing to accept and therefore goes to true repentance. And since we're on the topic of marriage, remember marriage is meant for a lifetime. The issue with this woman at the well is that Jesus still addresses the truth that the air continuously going around man after man and remarrying was not a true marriage before God. In fact, it was an adultery after an adultery. She was in the wrong course of life. But here comes Jesus to deliver her from her life of sin, from her shame, from her sense of feeling unworthy because she's a Samaritan woman, unclean. And I'm sure that that's exactly how you felt the moment you come to Christ. And this is what you have to be brought to through saving faith. To feel in that same both of brokenness and shame and unworthiness. The problem is not your sin. The problem is what you're going to do with that sin. The problem is how are you going to handle, whether you're going to try to hide it, self-justify it, rationalize it. No, instead you are willing to admit, lay it all out, having nothing to hide, showing the godly grief and the resolution to go and sin no more like this woman. Otherwise, God's truth remains still a riddle. And you can never explain, friend, what you never drank. Which means there's nothing greater than a person who claims to be Christian. That's, there's no greater paradox. And then he doesn't ask that, that tasted that water that gives life. Friend, you cannot find satisfaction with God while holding on to the old life. There's no true freedom from the power of sin until finally you come to Jesus Christ and He delivers you from all those chains as you confess and repent and come clean. But how did we end up talking about worship from water? It is because, friends, there is a better covenant that Jesus now inaugurates. Whether you're a physical Jew or not, whether you... You are part of the old covenant people of God. It doesn't matter anymore. You can go to this or that place to worship. It won't matter anymore. Don't focus on the wrong thing. That's what we want to see here. That whether you have actually tasted the living waters. And whether you, you've been washed 
by Christ is what matters. That you engage in the pursuit of the truth of His Word. That His Holy Spirit is now abiding in you. That is the beauty that, that what God does to every single child of God. It will matter more than all the external distinctive of this or that place of worship. That you have this intimate and simple and honest intimacy with God. That's what God wants to build, not just formality. The how of worship is far more important than the where. It is true for us who right now have no sanctuary that it makes us reflect the fact that God has no place that he, God doesn't live in a temple made by men. And therefore, you go to Him wherever you are. You can do all the proper things and right things in terms of external. You can honor God with your lips, but your heart is far more important to God. And your walk with Him. Otherwise, it's vain worship, false worship, which displeases the Father. That's why idolatry, statues of God, it's a nonsense because God is spirit. And those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. Focus on external is not the matter. But the, the point is, the truth of God's word needs to get into your heart. That is more important of the external of religion, which can be void of the substance that is in worship in spirit and truth. Otherwise, it's worth nothing. But let us now continue our story. The most beautiful part is verse 27 to 42. And now her growth leads to one harvest. The living water that had been poured out on her now leaves, leads to a harvest. The woman goes, the disciples come back, and she goes back downtown. And the disciples now are with Jesus. They bring food to her. Verse 28, she leaves her water pot behind. Look at that. She doesn't care about physical water anymore because she found the Savior. And she goes to the town and says, Come and see the one who told me all things I ever did. She's testifying about Jesus already. She's already evangelizing. And everyone wants to go back now, the entire town. But we don't know that detail yet. In verse 31, you have the disciples and they have come back and they urge him, Jesus, eat, eat some food. But the response of Jesus, once again, just like for the water, so for the food. You worry about physical food. I got food of which you know nothing about. Another kind of food, we could say. They're thinking... Somebody brought him food, but they didn't get it. Jesus is talking about, again, spiritual food. Just like he talked about spiritual living water. You, my food, friends, is this. Verse 34. To do the will of him who sent me. And to finish and complete his work. That's where Jesus found his true nourishment. Not in food which perishes but it's something far more lasting which is seeing all these Samaritan people come to the, know the Lord through a great revival a great harvest so he in order to make his point now he he comes with some farmers proverbs like saying grass is greener on the other side of the fence 
or till the cows come home or time to hit the hay. Now Jesus says, there are still four months, then come harvest. Which means there's an anticipation here that something, a great harvest is about to come and should steer us as disciples for action. He's trying to awake them to what spiritual fruit is coming ahead. He says, lift up your eyes and look at the harvest, which is already ripe, ready to be harvested. They don't realize what is about to happen, that a Samaritan revival is on the way. And you reap wage for eternal life. Conversions. Countless conversions are on the rise. And he also used another real riddle. One who sows, another reaps. Which is used also by Paul in Corinthians. And we don't know. Perhaps Old Testament saints or Jewish people had sown the seed in the souls that are about to come. And the disciples are reaping the benefits. But the point here, here comes the harvest. Verse 39 to 42, the Samaritans believed in Jesus. In fact, they asked him to stay several days. And what they say, they heard, they confessed that he is the, the Savior, the Messiah. Quick, quick revival. Not like the Nicodemus, the religious leader, the Jewish person who's got it all together and still tumbling in the dusk and, uh, dark and timid. A bold evangelism of this woman brings an entire revival to this Samaritan woman. They believe in Christ. That is what we do. We believe in Jesus, His perfect work, His perfect life, His perfect death on the cross, His perfect resurrection. That is the work that Jesus is zealous to complete. Jesus is so controlled and directed by this purpose that physical food becomes almost secondary. And notice at the end of this verse 42 that he's the savior of the world, not just of Israel. That's why many shall come from the east and the west and they will eat at the table with Jacob. Because the, the entire nations are coming to Christ, beginning with the Samaritans. But sadly, he had come to the Jewish people, Nicodemus. He had come to his own people, but they did not receive him. But even Samaritans who receive him can now receive eternal life. And so if this is so, our daily food friends, if you're in Christ, your daily food should be from now on to share this good news with everyone, everywhere. That's why Charles Spurgeon says that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Jesus wants his true disciples to realize that there is a spiritual harvest before our eyes. And something that our eyes can only see, sadly, is our worries and attention or physical needs, misguided impression, only temporary things that I'm telling you are not going to last. The material. We are so, our thoughts are so big about those things that we have no eyes to catch the spiritual aspect and the ministry before our eyes. No eyes to see that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you know, you can be consumed instead by the kingdom of God. Oh, would to God that we become so consumed by His kingdom and His righteousness. 
I don't know about you, but I don't want to come on that day to regret before the living God that I spent my life in so many wasted things that don't matter. Where there are eternal matters that matter far more. Our focus should be to know the will of God, to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And so we must pray that God help us to run the race to the point that our hobbies, our houses, our work, our natural families become almost secondary to the kingdom of God. And perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time. And there was a time where this was the case. But now, because of things in life, it's no longer the case. Go back to that. Open your eyes to the harvest, says Jesus. Notice also from our text, someone else has sown. And in our case, it's definitely true. I mean, this church has been... Uh, works through the year. I mean, if we think about Tommy, Tommy and Thera and what has been in the past, we have made good progress in seeking to already establish a biblical foundation and there's still room for growth. And we pray that God sends us a harvest that is ultimately through His Word. It is ultimately through us sharing the good news with excitement. And that is what the Samaritan woman does. Bringing to a true revival. You are, you're looking for a religious awakening. Here it is. Beyond the bad reputation of the Samaritans. There's a beautiful positive response to the gospel. From this town. And would to God that may, many may be brought to Christ the Savior in our midst. That's, that's why we must sow the seed of God's word. We must share this good news. And that proper time we'll see a harvest. But if we sow not, how can we expect the harvest to come? And, and if we don't pray for more laborers for the harvest. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And that is what Jesus calls us to do. And if you're coming tonight, especially if you're a member of this church, I really encourage you to come tonight because we're going to start a, a journey through Titus. And there we're going to see what, what, what it looks like for a church to have laborers, to be working for the good of the church and the growth of his kingdom so that we refresh ourselves with the thoughts. So how do we conclude here, friends? The woman at the well, the marvelous coming of Christ to the Gentiles, to the Samaritan women, that we all, like that Samaritan woman, are thirsty. And we are there at the well, and just like the call of Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water without money, buy and drink. This is the fascinating aspect of these waters, friends, that is free. That Christ gives it to you free, and it changes you completely forever. Here is you have this woman that had become thirsty. Here you have this woman who had been broken by sin and bad choices in her life. And she was dry. And Jesus gives her satisfaction. Jesus waters. Her interest grows all the way to bring a spiritual harvest among all of her people. Like a river, streams make glad the city of God. This story shows us that Christ quenches your thirst forever. And it begins with us, an abundant life filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And it is offered to everyone without partiality, not depending on, on where they come from, not depending on whether they got their act together before they come to Christ or not. Life is available to everyone. Even beyond those boundaries that were ethnic or geographical or Jews, non-Jews, or people that you tend to avoid, Christ can fill their thirst and change them completely. Break that addition. If only they taste the living water that Christ can give, that nothing else compare. Even among those who, again, we judge by the cover. Even among those who are in a spiritual bankruptcy, even beyond what is considered proper, Jesus comes and grants life. All that matters is that whatever brokenness we find, Jesus comes, satisfies us, and then leads us to worship in spirit and truth. That means having faith. No bigotry, no prejudice, but listen, whatever you are, whoever you are, if you are thirsty, that is your qualification. You come and drink this living water. That the call of coming and drinking anyone who thirsts, you come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because he, he promises, and his promise is sure that the fountain of water of life is given freely to those who thirst. That in Christ, our spiritual thirst stops as we taste the feeling of something that is so lasting, something that is so good to the last drop. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for this morning, Lord, that you have brought us to this wonderful waterfall of the living waters of life. That, Lord, even as we, we contemplate what lies ahead, that there is an eternity that we will drink from the river of life and we shall live eternally. God, I pray for anyone who among us this morning has come under this thirst and has realized the spiritual bankruptcy of his life, that, that he will come and drink from you. The Lord, because of what you have done at the cross 2,000 years ago, he can. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and that he, Lord, will come and place his trust in, in you and never thirst again. And God, even for us in our Christian walk, how many times we go to surrogates and broken cisterns, Lord. We instead, you call us back to turn and to abide in you and to drink from your word and to drink from communion with you. And as we pray, as we worship you, Lord, as we walk with you day by day, there we find the satisfaction, Lord. Help us, we pray. We are needy. We are thirsty. We're bankrupt and we need your help. Be with us, Lord, so that we will rejoice even as seeing a harvest, Lord. The harvest described in our text, Lord, that you will grant it to us. Lord, that we will rejoice in seeing in the wonderful works of God. And Lord, like saints of old, Lord, we will consumed by this kingdom work that things of this life will because so secondary. The Lord, we see your kingdom coming upon us. And the Lord, 
that becomes so important than even our lunchtime, even the fact that time passes and the hours, Lord, that in fellowship with you, in seeing, Lord, as we share the good news, we're seeing people come to Christ, Lord, that this will drive us. And we will see that nothing else in this life can compare to the service of the Almighty. We pray those things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.